I um, just uh, see that uh, some of you are settling in, and I want to ask a question. I want to ask a question. I thought, you know, we just start off with a few questions here. Is there anyone here who has never had a conflict? Just raise, raise your hand. You've never... <laughs> Stephanie, no. Never had a conflict. Okay, sweet. I haven't found anybody who has never had a conflict. But you know, I did meet a guy once. I really did. He told me that he didn't have a conflict. Yeah. Wasn't anything to do with the wires. He had a conflict. He didn't have a conflict. Didn't have a conflict with his wife. I'm sorry, we put it in those terms. Didn't have a conflict with his wife. And I said, you're married for 25 years. How are you doing that? 25 years. Said, yeah, we, we got married and went on our honeymoon to Argentina. She stayed there and I came up to New York. <laughs> so they had no conflict after that. Anyway, we have all had conflicts, whether it's uh, with our dear spouse, whether it's uh, with our father or mother, maybe a boss. Sometimes you have those kind of conflicts. And then sometimes in the body of Christ, and I've heard those, seen those, try to help with those in the body of Christ where there's been a conflict. They do happen. The thing about conflict is that they sometimes can be avoided. They sometimes can even be eliminated if you want to know the truth. And it's not because you become a hermit and you live in some cave in the middle of Kansas, okay? Well, they, don't have, they don't have caves in Kansas, in Montana, but I want to ask you the, this question. What is the greatest conflict that mankind has? Conflict between God and man. We are enemies with God before we get saved. We are haters of God before we get saved. That's the, that's the most profound conflict you can have, is that we're actual haters of God. We, we don't have a relationship with him, we are in sad trouble. That is the greatest conflict that we could have. So how can I help you, Anchored Fellowship, to be ready for the conflicts that invariably are going to come this next week? Notice I didn't even say this coming year. But invariably are going to come this next week. I, I want to give you a... Um, foundation upon which to work from, a foundation upon which that you can start to think and get your mind in that area. This is not about solving conflicts. This is about getting your mind in the right place because your conflicts come from your thinking. It comes from your heart, what's in there. So if we can get that in the right place, then we can begin to eliminate them. That, now, now, notice what I'm going to say here next. That doesn't eliminate the conflict that somebody may have with you or try to cause with you. I can't do that. They're not here. They're in Grace Life. They're in mainstream. And <laughs> just kidding. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3. As we look at this passage... And we are going to look at the passage. Next week, we're going to give you the ways of solving conflict. But here, we want to give you the, the foundation where your heart needs to be so that you can avoid conflict. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole section for you, starting in verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
this is not going to be an expository message so much as it is going to be laying that foundation. I want to make some proposals here, though. Um, I, I want these proposals and, and these propositions and, and these ways and things to, to be put, putting in your mind, to be thinking about. You need to have the right attitude. If I, if I can say this, many of us have the wrong attitude. I'm right. You're wrong. I mean, that doesn't happen ever with me. Oh, I just said it, didn't I? I'm always right. You're always wrong. And you never get to see it from my perspective because you're not listening to me. That's the mindset that we come to these things with. That's what has to be eliminated. That's called pride, and that's a whole other lesson that we're going to get to. We're going to talk a little bit about humility here. But these Christ-like expressions that are to be given here, the, the Christian life that we're supposed to be living, the one where our neighbor is supposed to say, there's something different about them. What is it that's different about them? These are the expressions that we can have towards our brothers and sisters, opportunities, but also to our neighbor, our neighbor who's watching us, our neighbor or relatives who are watching us and saying, eh, that's not really Christianity. Look at them. They, they still fight and argue and they still get in trouble. So what is the goal or mindset that avoids, and that's what I'm saying here, avoids or ministers to others? That's what you're supposed to avoid the conflict, or minister to others. The goal is found in verse 15. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You see, if you had the same kind of heart that Jesus Christ had, which when you got saved, you were given, by the way, you are to let the peace of Christ dwell there. It's supposed to be part of you. That's who you are now. You're different than the world. You no longer get anxious over somebody taking your parking space. You no longer get anxious over somebody cutting you off on the freeway. Now, guys, don't be looking away from me when I say that. But that's what's supposed to happen. The passage here, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You see, if you want peace to rule in the church, or you want peace to rule in your family, it must first rule in your heart. As you know, I do the counseling, a lot of counseling around here, and I get husbands and wives coming in, and they start by pointing their finger at one another. I don't want that. Cut your fingers off. I really don't care. I want you to tell me what you're doing. Take your responsibility. I failed here with my wife. Not say, my wife's not submitting to me, but I failed. See, that's letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts because you're not finding the other person at fault. You're taking responsibility that you should be taking. These are necessary attitudes and qualities. And these necessary attitudes and qualities will create peace in your heart, create peace in your home, and create peace in the church. The other thing that I want you to do is remember that you're not the Gestapo, police officer, KGB, or anything like that. You don't have to worry about what others are doing or not doing. It's not up to you. God Almighty is taking care of those things. He does a much better job than you do too. So let him make those decisions or those kinds of situations. You can see others that may be failing in these areas and you love your brothers and sisters, right? I know all of you do. And you can be praying for them where they overstep and they hurt someone else. You can step in and talk to them about their sin. But you're not supposed to be judging them. And you know what? We do that so often. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 7. You know, my, my children aren't doing this. My children aren't doing that. And we start to judge them and all of that kind of stuff. And it says there in Matthew chapter 7, do not judge so that you will not be judged. You know, it's interesting. The people, when they start complaining about their spouse or somebody else, <laughs> it's the things they're doing. Oh, wait a minute. That looks familiar. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck at, that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Take care of your own issues. 
That's why I'm saying set this pattern, which we're going to come to here, in your heart first. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So set these patterns, these qualities in your heart and your life. That's what I want to do here today as much as I can in the time that we have. Before Paul gets to the text, and we're going back to Colossians, he says a few things about these people that he's writing to, these people that he's speaking to. And um, let's look at Colossians chapter 3. In verses 1 through 4, he tells them that they were once spiritually dead. Now, as a pastor uh, with this number of people in here, there may be some spiritually dead people here. If you're dead, I, I can say, come alive. Come alive. Let this be the message where you see that God is calling you to that. If you are alive, then you need to start doing these kinds of things. Well, once spiritually dead, but now you're alive. There's something different about you. And if you're spiritually alive, folks, Paul is saying, act like it. Act like it. Colossians 3, 5 through 11, he goes through a whole list of, of sins that, in a sense, he puts it in a, in, a, in a past tense. These are all already things that are done away with. They're no longer there. They're no longer part of you. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, they're no longer part of you. They're gone. Vamanus. That's what happens to those things. These sinful attitudes do not work in the body of Christ. Those kinds of attitudes bring dissension in the body of Christ. These attitudes divide the body of Christ. And they affect many in the church. You know, even the sin that you don't even know about that's happening with somebody else affects others in the body of Christ here because then it takes the attention of everybody to take care of that problem away from you and ministering to you. So we are to realize that the old man is dead. He's been put to death. Yet every once in a while, he slips out of that grave and comes alive. You need to put him back in there. So in verse 12, Paul now gets to the meat of it, and he says this, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, those who are the chosen people of God, that means those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you are going to spend eternity in heaven. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good deal to me. In eternity past, or our great God and Savior, for whatever reason, reached down and said, I'm going to save that sin-sick soul. Again, I still don't know why he did it for me. I'm going to change them, okay? And then he's going to give us the gift of faith. We see that in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. If I put it this way, folks, when I was a kid, we used to pick baseball teams, you know, and and and... For some reason, I would be the guy who would pick out, and I'd pick out the best baseball players. God doesn't pick out the best Christians. But you're hand-picked anyway. He doesn't pick out the one who can hit the grand slam. He picks out us, who will fall far short a lot of times. But you're hand-picked first team of Jesus Christ. You are in Jesus Christ, chosen for eternity. I, I, I think that's a very basic fundamental thinking that needs to relieve our heart of self-centered, self-focused, prideful thinking. That somehow I'm better than my brother or sister. That I know best. This thought of God's sovereign choice here provide security for us as well. Provide security because now we know that we're in Christ. I love Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. But at the same time, 1 Peter 1.16 says, you be holy 
there's a call for holiness here. And so you're the chosen one, you see there, and the next word there, after chosen of God, they're holy and beloved. You are his child. And I got to tell you, you are in the mission field of life. All of this is a mission field. You know, I don't look so much forward to going to these conferences to speak there because most of the time you're speaking to Christians, but I'm looking at the person who's going to sit next to me on Turkish Airlines for four to 17 hours. They're going to have to sit next to me for 17 hours. They're in trouble. You know, that kind of interaction, I'm looking forward to those kinds of things. A person who may potentially be your opponent is his child, if we're talking about in the body of Christ, if they're a believer. And if they're not, Second Peter 1 tells me that I, since I'm a slave owned by him, I've been purchased by him, I am still to be holy and sanctified in, with this person. And, and I can't get past that blood-bought children of the king. We are his. We are his representatives here on this earth. And he has kingdom purposes for every single one of us. And how you live your life and how you work through the various trials that you have reflects whether he's God-glorified or not. Galatians 2.20. You don't need to turn there. Just jot that down. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Oh my, that's an incredible responsibility. It's no longer my life. It's his life. And I represent him. So we're chosen, we're holy, and now lastly, we're beloved. We're beloved. Christ tells us, and Paul tells us here, that Christ calls us his beloved. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. I think you see sometimes when I write to anchored, I write beloved, and you are. That's our position in Christ. He loves us. He cares about us. He went to the cross for us. And folks, that's an eternal love. That's a never-ceasing love. That's a never-diminishing love. That's a love that never wavers. Even when we sin, it doesn't change. You're his beloved. Never will you ever experience that kind of a deep love in your whole of life, except the love that he has for you. So we're armed with all of this information. Paul then goes on in verse 12, and he, he gives us some, some things that will help us to prevent, to resolve conflict before it even starts. And there are nine Christ-like qualities here. I, most of the uh, commentators are saying eight, but I threw another one in there just for good luck. No, I didn't for good luck. I did because I think it's part of it. Paul instructs us, his readers, to put on these qualities in this battle for conflict-free relationships. Oh, conflict-free relationships, that's incredible. How can that happen? So these particular attitudes that we're going to look at, he says to put on a heart of compassion. By the way, that, those words, when he says put on, it actually means like you put on clothing every day. You have to put these things on. They don't come natural to you. They're not part of who you are automatically. These are things that you have to put on. It's an exercise of putting those things on. And it says there, to put on a heart of compassion. Compassion is not something you see on the outside of a person. You can't just see, oh, Bill's compassion. You can see a sign there. It's something that lives inside. If I can put it this way, it's an emotional response to the suffering of others. I, I don't know if you've been looking at the news lately, but there are some people suffering around this world, if you caught that. Christians being uh, persecuted and killed in Africa. Christians being killed and persecuted in Iran. 
all kinds of places that these, these things are happening. There are also people that are neglected. It's an emotional response, but true compassion sees what the other person is going through and cares about what the other person is going through and wants to help them, not just give them a few bucks, but to help them. I want to give you an example. I want to give you an example. Lydia, okay, this made-up person, it's if you're Lydia, Lydia, it's not you, has been at home all day with three children. Two of those children have been sick. Vlad, her husband, comes home after 10 hours at work, and he immediately feels compassion for his wife. And he cleans the dishes, and he picks up the things that are cluttered in the home, tells his wife to sit down while he fixes the meal. I'm calling Grubhub, but he's fixing the meal. (laughs) That's a picture of compassion. That's a picture of compassion. He's the one who's thinking of others, serving them, because he knows that she's dog-tired. She's worn out from life. Compassion sees the suffering of others. They step up. They help display pity, and they display pity with purpose. Pity with purpose. Purpose to serve rather than to take. Compassion realizes its limitations and soberly and wisely looks at those limitations. Compassion is knowing that God has appointed a place for each of us in his kingdom. And this is part of the kingdom work. You say, but what? I mean, cleaning up the the kids' uh, uh, stuff and, and, and helping the wife is a kingdom purpose? You better believe it. Because if it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church in Ephesians 5.25, that's a display of that love for that wife by helping her, coming alongside her. Compassion is knowing God has a place for each of us in his kingdom work. Compassion feels pity for those who suffer, and it wants to alleviate that suffering as best they can. Of course, there are men who are in other fellowship groups, not in anchored. That would come home unthinking, selfish, complain to their wife that the meal isn't ready. But they're in other fellowship groups, so now you have an opportunity to talk to them (laughs) and let them know that they need to step up. You see, the man who calls himself a Christian needs to really have a lesson from Jesus Christ about his compassion or lack thereof. Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus display his compassion there. I mean, sorry, Matthew 9, 35 and 36. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, we can't do that today. Healing has ended But we can certainly help when somebody's sick. We can come alongside them, give them meals when they have babies and all of that kind of stuff. Then he said to his disciples, I'm sorry, seeing the people, he felt compassion on them. That's what he did. He felt compassion on them. I was going to keep going through the rest of the passage. I don't need to do that. Jesus Christ is an example for us. Second word that's there, and I don't want to lose out on my time here, kindness. Kindness. This quality is manifested in attitude and deed. It seeks to be friendly and helpful. There is a desire to meet needs by showing mercy and doing good to others, even if they don't deserve it. Luke 6, we have that picture. Luke 6, 35 and 36. 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. 
for you will be sons of the Most High, and he will himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. You do something not expecting something in return. So many of us want to do something, get something back. Even if it comes to gifts, we give a gift, we expect to get something in return. You should give the gift and not even think about what's going to come in return. Whether the person says thank you or not, who cares? I know that's good etiquette, folks. I understand that. We're not talking about etiquette. You give and you don't look to get something in return. Titus 3.4, I thank you for reading Titus earlier. Titus 3.4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. That's what he did. His kindness saved us. He saw that we were destitute, depraved, and he saved us. See, we are, beloved, to show kindness even towards ungrateful people of the world. Years ago, the pastors of Grace Church used to do what they call pastor of the day. Now we have the interns doing that. I don't know if it's intern of the day or what, but they do it, okay? But pastor of the day, and I, you know, what would happen is people would come on the campus, and then you would try to help them, give them the gospel if they needed. If they needed food, you can give them food. We did not give money. Because if you gave money, we'd have them lined up all the way down to downtown L.A. So we would give food. And uh, this day, uh, this particular guy comes in, and I'm giving him the gospel. And, and, and he's, oh, tell me all about his problems and all of that. And, and so I, I said, oh, this guy needs two bags. So I'm going to get him. And he said, oh, no, you don't have to carry them. I said, no, 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 let me, let me carry them out there for you. No, 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 you don't need, I would like to carry them out there. We go out there, and this is the side of the seminary building, and he stops at a brand new BMW. No. I was choking, putting those bags in his car. And I was kicking, I'm, I'm going to be honest here, I was kicking in my mind all the way back to my office, which was at the time over in the chapel. And I run it to Fred Barshaw. And, and he said, Bill, you look disturbed. I said, I am. <laughs> He said, what is it? I said, well, this guy came for food and, and, and I, I gave him the gospel and then I took it to the brand new BMW and I'm, I'm driving a junker at the time. I mean, the thing is, I'm pushing it halfway here, you know? <laughs> and Fred said, that's not yours to give away. That's Christ's to give away. You didn't give it away. That's not even Grace Church's to give away. That's Christ's to give away. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> I, I had a great lesson in your kind, even to those who may be taking advantage of you. That's kindness, folks. Romans 5.10 says this, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. God sent his son to die for me. I could certainly give up two bags of food for a guy who's driving a brand new BMW. That's kindness. Show kindness, even to ungrateful people. Example, and, and this is a true one, uh, and you gotta hear this. Uh, I was working with a pastor's wife. She was a pastor's wife in Indiana. She was working on her certification for ACBC as a counselor, and that means that I have to go through the 50 cases she has, and, and, and she's up there, and, and I'm working with this pastor's wife, and she gave this assignment to a woman. I, as a man, could not give this kind of assignment. I want you to know, because it's, it's hard to say this to a woman, but she gives this assignment to an unequally yoked woman, and she tells this woman to do every single kindness she could think of toward her husband, though he was loud, angry, and verbally abusive. Most women are recoiling, right? That's, that's the general, and I, I have a difficulty, you know, I want to go over there and bat the guy over the head. But this is what she gave as the homework. This woman made her husband, and this is what she said, her project, her project, so to speak. For three weeks into the project, somewhere into three weeks into the project, the husband asked the wife why she was being so kind, which tells me something. <laughs> 
she wasn't so kind before. Okay? Give you a hint. All right? She was probably grouchy before. Ah. Six weeks. Six weeks into the project, the husband asked if he could come to the church where she got the information about being kind. He wanted to know, where, where, where are these people? You know, are they from another planet? And he comes to the church. The pastor's wife then introduces him to the pastor. All of those kinds of things. He eventually came to know Jesus Christ. It changed his life because his wife was kind. Now, folks, I got to say this on the other side. She could be as kind as Dickens and all for the rest of her life, and it doesn't mean that her husband's going to get saved. But you know what? Having that on your time when you stand before the Lord, and, and he says to you, why should I let you in heaven? And said, because I, I, I did nothing. I just loved you. Oh, let me give you a chief place in heaven. That's what you have to do. You don't have to be preaching and all of those other things. The woman did what she's supposed to do, period. Showed kindness to her husband, who was not very, very kind toward her. That's two. Number three, humility. Humility. Humility is when you know you do not know everything. In other words, you can't be a teenager. Sorry if there are any teens here. Don't mean to pick on you. It means you don't know everything. We can all misjudge or misunderstand a situation. Humility is knowing that what you have comes from God and not yourself. If you have any talents, it comes from Him. If you have any intelligence, it comes from Him. Humility is knowing that all you have has been gifted to you by God. As a matter of fact, whether it be children, your home, your job, or any other valuable, they are God's. They're His. You're just a steward of them. I think that's why it was easier for me to let go of my children. They, I was a steward of them, and now I give them back to God. They're going to be in another home. They have someone else that they are going to be responsible toward. Humility sees others as gifted by God, as blessed by God. They're God-blessed gifts. If you have that kind of thinking, folks, that can facilitate peace in your heart. We're all great sinners. That, that goes without a doubt. And we're all such sinners that we need grace, the grace of God and the grace of others. And I think humility produces that. This is the attitude that I'll, I'll call the attitude of contentment. We see where we are, our status in the community in which we live, and we believe God is at work. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Walking humbly with your God. That's what's necessary. Humility is the antithesis of the attitudes of our culture, isn't it, folks? Oh, my goodness. You, 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 you look at the culture, and it's ugly. We're singing that song, and, and I'm thinking about our culture while we're singing it, and we are, seems to be going to the trash heap. I believe that when we get to the point of humility in our walk, when we are humble people, we will then be absolutely dependent upon God. He will be our master, he'll be our redeemer, and he will then begin to change hearts, change lives. Christian humility is the opposite of our refined and decadent culture. Robert Jones uh, wrote a few books and uh, happened to know him. He says this, Biblical humility involves an utter trust in God that allows others to be honored above me. That's hard. To allow somebody else to be honored, maybe even for the work you did. It's okay. It's okay. First um, Peter 2 tells us that uh, it, it's not about us but it's about the word of God. We're just like uh, the, the 
the grass of the field, and it's going to burn up. Two generations, folks, and they don't even know you. They don't even know you. I mean, unless you've written books and, you know, that kind of thing. No, they're not going to know you. That's humility. Because it's about God, not about us. Number four is gentleness. Gentleness is an awareness of one's own inadequacies. Gentleness is holding one's hand open, not demanding. It's not demanding your way. You see, demanding always produces conflict. The flesh wages war because of our pleasures. We see that in Galatians 5. There's the flesh fighting against the spirit going on there. See, if one has the gift of gentleness, they know how to respond in the times of temptation. A gentle word turns away wrath, Proverbs 15. It's always good to memorize scripture, folks. Always good to memorize scripture, knowing that that scripture is true and right and will bring forth benefit. In my counseling experience, this is an area where some men struggle. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. I'm a guy. I'm a guy. You see, a man thinks that he's empowered by his strength over his wife. That's what he thinks. In reality, <laughs> that shows that he's really weak. If a man tries to dominate, that shows he's a weak man, and he needs to dominate in order to stay in charge. That's sad. You see, Jesus was not a weak man. Jesus was gentle and humble of heart. We see that in uh, Matthew chapter 11. Paul was not a weak man. I mean, you, you think of the, some of the things that he went through, what he was put through. He proved to be gentle among you in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 is what it says there. That's a real man. Gentleness is showing concern for others' welfare while not pushing your agenda. There was a time I was counseling this couple. I was a huge man. I mean, you know, my doorway is about that big. He filled it. I mean, he's a big guy. You think Carl's big? This guy was bigger than Carl, okay? And his wife is this little teeny woman. And they came in for counseling. Well, he, he started speaking in my office. My books were rattling in the... <laughs> I could not. Man, this guy had a deep voice. I said, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be in his home when he got angry or he was trying to tell somebody what to do. I went, oh my. I, uh, I said to him, you know what? The first thing we need to do is take it down a few decibels. And then what I'd like you to do is every time you want to speak to your wife, grab her hand and just let her know that you love her. Because even just saying regular words was just like, <laughs> it happened to work. His voice penetrating. Oh, he needed to be more gentle. And that's what we need to learn. If I see that in my wife, that she's afraid of my voice and you know, sometimes you call from another room, and then when you get to the real room, then you're still saying it from the other room. It, it's not so gentle, you know? You got to fix that. Next thing is patience. Patience, glorifying God in the situation that is bordering on sinful conflict. This is when you need patience. This is key to resolving sinful conduct, sinful conflict. Always look to edify your brother or sister. How can I edify them here? Yes, I am ticked with them right now. I don't like what they did to me. I need to edify them. I need to build them up. Now you say, but, but pastor, they're going to run over me. Does it matter? Does it matter? Patience is long-suffering. That's what Jesus had. That's what God had. Has said in the Old Testament is the word that's used there, long-suffering. He kept working with the Jewish nation, working with the Jewish nation. It kept going on and on and on. You see, patience is a long-suffering that is holding off responses to injustices or unpleasant circumstances. 
In other words, there is no taking of revenge or retaliation. I was with Chris Williams in India. We were, I think, our first or second trip there. And um, they actually had a Jeep. This is the first time we ever had a Jeep pick us up. The other times we're taking buses and all this kind of... But the Jeep was a five-person Jeep. We had nine people in it, plus luggage. And there's a guy in the back who had this guitar hitting, you know, sitting on his head. And he's sitting this way. And, and we had a four-hour drive. And Chris said to him, he's so patient. You didn't complain once to this particular guy. I said, that's the way we make him at Grace Church. In Faith Builders at the time, at Fellowship, no. <laughs> Actually, he wasn't even in Faith Builders. But folks, that's patience. Being in those uncomfortable situations and still being able to, I, I can do this. I can do this. You see, patience gives us the opportunity to watch God work and to see what he is up to. To be able to sit back and say, okay, God is at work here. He is about doing something. And you know what? I trust him completely and thoroughly that he's working in that person's life. This is the ability to show self-restraint toward those who provoke you. You know, when I was a kid, I knew exactly what buttons to push to get my mother angry. I knew the exact buttons to push for my dad and for my brothers and sisters, and I pushed them very often. You know, I, I regret having done that. I was in the kingdom of darkness, but you also know the buttons to push with the person that you're married to, the buttons to push with the person you're living with. You need to stay away from the buttons. You need to eliminate the buttons from your life. This is the ability to display self-restraint in the face of those who provoke you. It could be the office manager. You know, the office manager who questions your abilities and, and, and questions you on every move that you make. It could be the child. And none of you would have a child like this who refuses to do what you want them to do, right? You would never have a child that does that. Anybody have a child that was like that? Oh, Incredible. The child who doesn't want to watch when they're crossing the street about the traffic or anything like that. Or to talk to a person that comes into the neighborhood that they shouldn't really talk to. We used to try to teach our children about strangers. The person who is always protecting them from but never getting to know them. The person who's always protecting themselves but never getting to know others. Friends, patience is keeping your emotions from producing sinful thoughts, attitudes, or actions. That's what patience is. Now, I'm going to give some examples of impatience. I'm not going to look for people raising their hands and saying amen. I don't need to have any of that. But impatience is this, interrupting others when they're speaking, jumping to conclusions when they're speaking, judging motives. You know what? The Bible tells you, you can't even know what their motive is. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, do not go on passing the judgment until the time comes and the Lord reveals the motives of men's hearts. Okay. Or how about this? Impatience is also demanding answers. I want it now. Sometimes there isn't an answer. That's impatience. And I know none of you have it, but your friends that are in the other group, please help them out. Point number six, and we're going to go a little bit faster, bearing with one another. Grace is to be granted in our exchanges with our brothers and sisters. It means that I am to endure. It describes the manner here. I am to endure this other person. It is in the present tense, which means it's in the continual action. It frankly appears that Paul is saying that others will annoy you. Cannot, can you believe that? Others would annoy you? Learn to bear with your brothers, with your sisters, with your spouse. You know what? And this is for the single people. You'll be shocked at this. But once you get married, you know that person you marry can actually exasperate you. Really good. They can even aggravate you. I know that wouldn't happen for people here. But for other groups, that's what happens. Bearing with one another means forbearance even when you're being ignored. 
Hard to believe, but those things can happen. And I'm going to skip my example there because it's too close to home anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, it's about the guy who was sitting in his chair, okay? And, and he's sitting in his chair and he's reading his book and his wife wants to talk. She wants to communicate. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you got the picture. <laughs> Look, I told you, when we got married, I loved you. <laughs> Just, that's a joke, folks. <laughs> Number seven is forgiving. Thank you. <laughs> forgiving one another. The bottom line of the story of Matthew 18, through, uh, 21 through tw- uh, 35, the bottom line is that you are expected to be forgiving of your those who ask for forgiveness. You should be forgiving your brother and your sister of their sin. Don't hold it against them. I got to tell you, you've been, sa- you've been saved and you've been forgiven of this much sin and the other person has sinned this much sin and you're having trouble forgiving them? Give me a break. That's what the problem is. The issue is Gary and Betty, Betsy Rasucci in their book, Love That Last, said this, the granting and extension of forgiveness creates a lasting reconciliation and converts a destructive event into a redemptive one. This process echoes the gospel and is only possible because of the gospel. Yeah. Asking for forgiveness And I'm going to tell you this, that if you sin against somebody and others see you sinning against them, you need to go to the people that that saw you sin and ask them for forgiveness. I tell this to to parents. You know, if you have a fight, you're sinning against each other. Hopefully you make up and you have forgiveness. But at the same time, you need to talk to the children. You say, why? They're just kids. No, they may be just kids. But they need to see the redemptive process going on. They need to see how you come to those conclusions. Because otherwise, all you did was teach them how to fight. You didn't see them teach them how to forgive. Number eight, love. S. Lewis Johnson said that this is the one quality the, of this important and as most important quality here because it, it holds it all together. See, if I don't have love, I'm not going to have patience. If I don't have love, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to have gentleness. So it holds it all together. And this is a, a, a gift, folks, to love others. Huh. It's a gift of salvation. First John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. For everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love, listen to this, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then Jesus says, love your enemies. So we're, we're in a pickle if we're not doing that. So love is extremely, extremely important. It's, it's what we call self-giving to another. Love is supreme grace, if we want to put it that way. This is the quality that holds all of the others together. And then I added this one, and I hope you don't mind. And I think it's important to add this one. Be thankful. You see that in verses 15 and 17? Being thankful for what God has gifted you with? Yes. Be thankful for the spouse you have. Yes, be thankful for the difficult child you have. Yes, be thankful for the difficult parent who is now in Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever. Be thankful for that. Be thankful for the unbelieving brother, sister, whatever that's in your life. Be thankful. Why? Because God directs you to be that way. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but by everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Thank you, God, that you gave me this difficult situation that I'm now on my knees to pray to you. Because otherwise, I may have been a little lax in my prayer time. I may have been a little overlooking of those kinds of things. And folks, be thankful for the multitude of blessings you have. And and don't look at what you don't have. Look at what you already have. 
All this is a process, folks. Remember, these are the things that you put on every day. It's a process. You cannot accomplish anything without the help of the Lord. And that's why I believe verse 16 is there. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. God's word has to be in here. It has to be part of you. You have to be able to pull it up when those situations arise, maybe of, of anger, and you can say, a gentle answer turns away wrath, or whatever. You've got to be able to pull those things up, or no temptation has overtaken me, such as common to man. You've got to be able to pull those things up. You see, this is all about redemption and your sanctification. Christ-likeness, unity, and peace. That's what comes of this. This is only achieved by His grace, and it's for His glory. It's only achieved by His grace and for His glory. These are the principles that we have. Now, look at what Paul does and gives us the context. He goes to wives. Then he goes to children, uh, husbands. Then he goes to children. Then he goes to fathers. Then he goes to slaves in verses 18 through 22. And then he goes through fellow workers, and he goes all the way down to chapter 4. That's the context. Paul knew the church. Paul knew these people, and he knew their struggles. And while I, I may have been joking about the other fellowship, I know that it exists here. I know that there are struggles here. Please take it personally, but from a good heart, a good heart that sees that in Christ we can be better, we can be more. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, that we can achieve more. And, And folks, God wants that. Yeah, you're saved, going to heaven. But God just doesn't want a little. He didn't save you for a little. He saved you for a lot. He saved you for much. He saved you to be better, not the same old, same old. And that's my prayer, is that as we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, looking at something like this where we have a foundation, we can then declare 2 Corinthians 5, 9, my ambition, whether at home or abroad, is to be pleasing to Him. And I know that it can happen. I know that it can happen because I've seen it. I've experienced it with various folks that I have counseled. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. It is holy. And so, Lord, I I pray that as we read it, we study it, the expectations you have from us are wrought because of the grace that you give us, and it's for your glory. And so, Lord, what a great task we have. What a great responsibility we have as believers. Let our words bless others. Let our actions be a blessing to others. Let our life be a blessing and a glory to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.